You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games as well as those that enjoy and play them. Thank you for your support, and I hope you enjoy listening. The Broken Meeple, Episode 15, Grumpy Old Gamer Welcome to the show. On today's episode, I give my thoughts on the recent demo day as hosted by Board Game Extra, as well as giving my first impressions of games played at the event. I then discuss the differences between the living card game model and the collectible card game model from my experience in life and give my opinions as to which one I prefer. And then I get into a top 10 list I've been wanting to do for some time. My top 10 overrated games. I am your host Luke Hector, sometimes mistaken for the purple mutated virus in Pandemic. Welcome to episode 15. Whoa, it's been a while since I started this back in August, September time. I never thought I would get this far. But the show is still going strong and it will continue to go strong as I have recently put in an application to sign up to the Dice Tower Network. For those of you unaware, the Dice Tower has a network of podcasters from around the world who are mentioned on their show, but also the network is essentially a quick link access to all sorts of really good gaming podcasts, mostly in the US, but there are a few dotted around in the UK and certain other countries in the world as well. But it's a good honor to be put on that show. I had to have a minimum log of 10 podcasts before I was even eligible to a, to send in an application. And now I'm on the 15, I'm still going strong. They hopefully have accepted my application for doing it and I'll be able to sign up to that network very soon so I'm very excited about that and I thank Tom Vassell and the crew for at least giving me the opportunity to do so. Now recently I have signed up for Just Giving Cancer Research UK page because of Tabletop Day 2014. On Tabletop Day, there will be two events hosted in my local area. The first will be hosted by a coalition of Portsmouth on board and the Solent Wargamer Society. And this is effectively an eight-hour session of board games from 10am to 6pm on Saturday the 5th of April, a day after I turned 30, more on that later. And... Straight after that, or even during that, there is also a two-day convention going on at Southampton at the Jury Inn, which is a it's a small convention called Mini Stab, and normally it's only about a day long, but here we've managed to secure it for two days straight. Now, this is quite a big leap. Hopefully the accommodation will be a lot bigger than the pub we had last time. I, I mean, being a Jury Inn, I suspect it will be quite substantial, so it's going to be good. I intend to go to both sessions, but obviously I am going to the Portsmouth one first, and then Mini Stab will have to see me after that. However, what's this got to do with Cancer Research UK? Well, what I have planned to do, if I meet a minimum target, which I think was £100 worth of donations, and you know I've only got up to about 15, 20 quid at the moment, so please people, send in some donations, is that if I meet the minimum target, I will be doing a 24-hour gaming marathon. Just me, no one else, although if anyone wants to join me, they're more than welcome to. But the intention is that I will start gaming at 10 o'clock at the Portsmouth on board session. I will game solidly for 8 hours at that session. I will then drive straight from there to the Southampton Mini Stab event, which will take me about 30 minutes, but I don't believe that you're ever really relaxed when you're driving. And then I will continue the rest of my 24-hour stint at Southampton all the way until 10 in the morning. 
Now, if some people disagree and think that driving is actually the equivalent of taking a break, then I'm prepared for this. I will game until 10.30 to make up for the travelling time, but I do not have the powers of teleportation, so there are limits to what I can do. But... I want to meet the minimum target of donations before I do that, and if I don't meet the minimum target, then I may decide to do it anyway, it depends how I feel, but you know, this is quite a big task, and what I have said is that if I don't meet the minimum target, I will match the donations received, and send my own donation to Cancer Research, so let's say I only get 60 quid of donations, I will send 60 quid out of my own pocket to Cancer Research UK. I believe they do a good job around the world, and I, well, around the world, UK mainly, but still, they, they have uh, worldwide implications as well, and I know, I've known a few people that have had cancer in the past, so I want to help them as much as I can, but I strongly implore that if you are listening to this podcast and you have not made a donation please help me to make that minimum target because I would like to do this 24-hour session but I just want it to be worth something you know I want it to mean something to some gamers out there who have generously donated and want me to do this because otherwise it's going to seem a bit weird on the day as for whether I'll have people to play with, well, that's hit and miss. I know in America people will game until the early hours of the morning, and that's great. I wish there were more like that here. But there is every chance that, even though this is going on for two days straight, there may not be so many people at that time wanting to play games. I am prepared for this, though. As long as the venue is open, I will simply take some games with me that can be played solo and play those until people turn up. So I suspect I'll have things like Sentinels of the Multiverse, maybe Marvel Legendary, maybe a Euro game. Maybe I might take Caverna or Nations along. That would uh, work for one player. Basically, I'll have my grounds covered. So if you are listening and wish to make a donation, please visit my Just Giving page. I believe the link is Just Giving UK. Sorry, justgiving.co.uk slash Luke-Hector. However, if you look on my blog, then you will see the link in a separate thread. And if you've seen any of my YouTube videos or any recent review posts, you will notice I've put links in there as well. Then that, look at my Facebook page, look at my Twitter page. You will find a link to it somehow. But enough of that. What's the deal with my first impression today? Well... Recently, Board Game Extra, which is a local game store in Eastleigh, hosted a demo day for some of their games. They do this usually once every few months or so. They get volunteers in, some staff and people who know them, to show off certain games that they have in stock, as well as sell their games at pretty good prices to be considered. You know, they're pretty much on par with online prices, and because you buy it directly from them at the demo day, you don't have to pay shipping, so you do get some pretty good deals. I bought, for example, the Netrunner core set because I needed a second core set for my Netrunner collection and it only cost me 23 quid. Now that's pretty good. You find it for 23 quid online, you know, including shipping, and I'll be impressed. But you know, it's a very good demo day. I got to try out two new games I had not tried before, one of which was a bit of a surprise to me, and the other one I'd been wanting to try for a while. And that's what my first impressions today are going to be based on. So without further ado, let's get cracking. First up on the first impressions list, we have Stone Age. Now, Stone Age is relatively well known to a lot of gamers. It's a gateway worker placement game 
done by Bernd Brunhofer. I probably am going to get a lot of flack for not pronouncing his name right as a designer. I do apologise. But it was published by Z-Man Games, and most people who know games will have heard of Stone Age. It's set in prehistoric times, and it's quite a simplistic game. You have your workers, you put them out onto spots in order to collect resources, or collect cards and build buildings, breed for more people in your tribe, collect tools, that kind of thing. There's quite a lot of different things you can do. And the object of the game is that over a certain number of rounds, you will continue to do this, gain victory points, until the end of the game, where it is triggered by one of the piles of buildings, of which there are several, running out. So it's quite good that there isn't a specific end game setting. You know, it's not like 10 turns and it's done. It's down to whoever nicks the last building in a particular pile and causes the game to end. So that's quite a good feature. Um, in terms of component quality, this looks gorgeous. I mean, we're not talking the you know groundbreaking in any sense but the artwork on the cards is very good the uh, resources are pretty good and you can pimp the game out with better resources if you really want the little meeples that you get are slightly different from a typical meeple and they look nice as well but what really makes this stand out is the board the artist of this game is michael menzel and when he creates a board it just always looks gorgeous. I don't know what it is with him. He puts so much detail into his boards. There's like, you can look around, you can see guys farming on a field. Uh, you can see little meeples doing their own thing, completely unrelated to the game. They just happen to be there in a corner. And But everything even relevant to the game, it looks sort of colourful, well-detailed and gorgeous. Any game that has Michael Menzel as an artist is worth having a look at if you care about having a board that looks good. I know Tom Vassell has raved about him as well, but... He really does. He just makes gorgeous looking boards. And when this is laid out, it does look nice. I'll give it credit. It's a very beautiful game. However, yeah, this is where the... Well, let's, let's start off with the good points first. It is very simple. This is a game that you could teach to non-gamers and little ones pretty easily. This is a gateway worker placement game. The actions you take are simple. The board is intuitive, so it makes sense. And the general gist of the game, collecting sets of cards, building buildings and resources, is not that difficult to grasp. It's a very simple, yet still a fun game to play. And there's a lot of dice involved, and you know, younger people and non-gamers are okay with throwing dice. However, this in lies its also big inherent problem. I was playing the game, and it looked good, and I enjoyed myself. But there's a lot of luck in this game, and I mean a lot. People argue that you can mitigate the luck, but not easily. The only way you can mitigate the luck in this game is by collecting tools, which allow you to add to the rolls that you have. But the contested space where you actually get tools, there is only one space you can go, and it's very popular. Which means that chances are, unless you've gone first or second, you are unlikely to be able to get a tool. And chances are, you wanted to go somewhere else anyway, so you might have had to forfeit getting a tool on the turn to essentially carry on with that front. So, And even then, they only add plus one to your roll, eventually plus two and plus three, but you've got to get a lot of tools before that happens. So, And the idea is, when you go to get food or resources, depending on the resource you're getting, you roll some dice, one for each worker you put there, and you divide it by a certain number depending on the resource. Two for food, three for wood, four for brick, five for stone, six for gold. You know, obviously it's harder to get the more valuable resources. But, my God, I mean, I 
started off with a tactic of breeding quite early. So, I, you know, I ended up with more people in my tribe, more bodies to stick around. I did this because I know what my dice luck is like in games. It Dice just hate me. I like rolling dice, and I like beautiful dice. But why do dice hate me? I don't know. Luck just doesn't flow with me, really. And I could send twice the amount of people to any place there, and I would still roll worse than somebody who would put half the workers there. And when that happens, it just cripples you. You can't do anything about it. It's, you know, if you decided you sent more than enough people to get food, and then you roll three ones and a four, barely get any food, you can't feed your seven people, and then you've got to lose resources or victory points or whichever in order to do it. And it's just too swingy like that. You know, I can see why some people would like it. The dice makes it simple. And I will say that this is a perfect game to have as a family worker placement game. So I can see that it's popular and I can see why people like it and it's a good game for that purpose. But I just cannot deal with the dice luck in this game. If you want more control over your decisions that you make and more control over the resources that you get when you actually put someone there to get a resource, I mean... Let's take Agricola, for example. You place your guy on the spot to get it, and the guy gets that amount of resources. There's no other factor involved. But here, you roll the die, and you might get a load of resources, or you just might get none. It's Well, not none, but well, you actually know you can get none. If you don't send enough people to get the higher resources, there is a chance you might get nothing at all. And it just really doesn't sit well with me. And, you know, I can see this being a, a game with many flip-the-table moments where the dice just hate you and screw you over. And once you get screwed over a few times by the dice, that's it. You're out. Because somebody who hasn't been screwed by the dice is more than likely going to be getting a substantial lead. Now, I was able to finish second in the game because, you know, I was able to make some pretty good choices of cards and I powered through the buildings, whereas other people were doing other things. But... The times where I just had the bad luck, it just completely screwed me from getting a first place position. And it just really doesn't sit well with me, that. So, I'm. it was a little disappointing in that respect. But I did know going in that the dice may be a problem after seeing t- uh, Dice Tower's recent review. And Z Garcia had a similar opinion on this front. And I pretty much side with him. I agree with Sam Healy in that, that this game is very good. It's very well designed, it looks gorgeous, and it's perfect for families and non-gamers. So, it gets a thumbs up for me from that respect. But I'm not going to buy this game, and I'll play it if I'm in the right mood, but the dice luck really does kill it for me. It's just a killer for me that a strategy game should have that amount of dice luck in it. So, it gets a thumbs up for me, but it's not one that I'm going to really look out for again. So that's Stone Age. The second game I got to play was a relatively new game, only published recently by Space Cowboys. By me, what a name for a publisher. It's called Splendor. This is a game where you are effectively collecting cards and gems. Now, it's the first player to get to a certain amount of points. And what these gems are is that there are these, what could only be described as poker chips with gem pictures on them, that represent different colour gems, white, black, green, red, blue, so on. There are cards in the centre, levels 1 to 3, which determines sort of how expensive they are and what rewards you get, where you have to have a certain amount of gems in your possession, whether by cards that you have bought or by the ch- chips that you have taken, 
in order to buy further ones. Some have points and all of them have gems on them in order to say, right, for the next thing you buy, you have this gem in your collection. The idea is, is that you will continue collecting gems and collecting cards until eventually one player reaches a target number of points and is the winner. It's a relatively simple game, only plays up to four players and takes, they say, around 30 minutes to play. And that's actually not too far off, actually. I think the longest this game should ever take, even with maximum players, is 45 minutes. And that's with analysis paralysis featuring in the system there. But no, I think 30 minutes is pretty accurate. So this could make a good quality light filler game. But... It was it was good fun. I like the idea and the um, artwork on it is very good. The gem chips in particular are brilliant. They are very chunky. They actually feel like proper ceramic poker chips and they've got really nice pictures of the gems themselves on there. The cards are a bit weird. They, they look good. They have nice pictures of the gems on them and they're very clear and very colourful. But it's hard to tell exactly what is the point of the artwork on them. I mean, some of them show various bits of terrain where you might find that particular gem but some of them sort of show city areas and things like that and it's it's kind of weird i wouldn't say it was overly consistent and i don't quite get what the purpose of the development cards are so it's kind of weird why the artwork is like that but it still looks colorful so you can get over that just rather than think of this as a thematic game which it is not there is no theme in this. You could happily replace the theme in this with something else and it would still be the same mechanics. But mechanics-wise, the game works quite well. You have not much interaction with other players. However, you are able to obviously buy cards that they might have wanted. And if you can't buy the card immediately, you can actually take it into your hand where you have a max hand size of three and basically you reserve it to hopefully buy later on or you just keep it in your hand just to screw someone else out of getting it so there is a little bit of cutthroatness in that respect um i think i managed to win the game from a poor position to begin with so there is a good way for people to catch up and that but i suppose maybe maybe i wasn't catching up maybe i actually was ahead of the game from the beginning and just didn't realize it but i suppose if you do fall a bit behind you are going to struggle to beat the runaway winner in this game now, it was alright and it works well as a good filler, but my problem with it is that I don't think this has the longevity to make it as a as a decent filler game, not compared to all the other things out there. We have other filler games that meet this purpose, like King of Tokyo and Smash Up and Smiley Face, that kind of thing, and this game has to be really good in order to measure up to those games. And my problem with it is that even though it's alright, I fear that it just hasn't got the longevity because you haven't got many paths to victory and there's not much variation in the cards. They're just different costs for different cards. That's all there is. You don't have any special powers. There's no special abilities. There's only, I think, six what they call noble tiles where if you have a certain amount of cards of particular colors, you are able to collect these nobles and they just give you extra points. There's nothing special about the nobles other than that. They might as well just be called A, B, C, D, E, objective or something. And there's just not enough variation in the game. It's it's nice, and I was glad to have played it, but you could get bored with this on repeat plays. I don't see this being anybody's cup of tea for a long period. I would happily play it, but own it? No. I'd, I'd just get bored with it too quick, because you're doing pretty much the same thing every game, and I wouldn't really say that there's much variation in... I mean, it doesn't really... Obviously, the cards that come out are going to be different in the order they come out in that. But because all you're simply doing is just seeing if you've got enough gems to buy a particular card, 
there's not much in the way of like variation and tactics. You're doing the same thing every game. It's meant to be a filler, I know, but it's just when you've got so much cool stuff at the moment, it's not really going to measure up to those. So it's a shame. It's an okay game, and I say give it a try. You might like it. I mean, it is a cheapish filler game, so you might think differently and decide that it's for you. But personally, I just think it just hasn't got the legs to measure up to current really good filler games. There's just not enough variation in the game to keep me enticed. So that's Splendor by Space Cowboys. This will be a quick discussion for today because it's been mentioned on a lot of other podcasts and I'm effectively just giving my opinions on the subject. There are two main formats for card games at the moment. One is the collectible card game, which is something we've known for many years. Uh, Magic the Gathering was probably the biggest example of this. And the idea is, is that you have loads of cards in each particular set or expansion that comes out you will buy a booster pack which would have a certain amount of cards but the cards that you got in it would be random and there would be common uncommon and rare cards maybe super rare cards and it was a case that you had a chance effect of whether you would get the cards you want now the idea is is that if you didn't get the card you want you would hopefully trade it off but there was no guarantee that someone would want the card you needed and obviously the values on particular cards shifted quite significantly so you never really had equal trade opportunities at particular times but the it worked for a lot of people and some people splash out a ton of money on these ccgs i for one am guilty of this as well i used to play magic i used to play aliens predator which was a very old ccg that people don't even remember i've played i confess i even played pokemon when i was really young and thankfully i didn't play it for very long um i was a big fan of the star wars decipher ccg card game the one where you had horizontal landscapes and you could battle in space and battle on land and there was all sorts of characters and things you could be you know that was a brilliant game probably one of my favorite ccgs to date and there's a fair few you know even the anime ones Yu-Gi-Oh's and cardfight vanguard have been quite popular with people uh there's now my little pony ccg seriously my little pony why my little pony <laughs> i can't think of anything worse to put as a collectible card game i just recently watched dice tower do a live play of the my little pony ccg and i i know they did it for charity but i feel their pain i even saw two people bring it to the last southampton on board club and i just looked at it in utter dismay that two grown adults were playing my little pony collectible card game seriously what i just could not believe it but that aside that's for hope for maybe another time in terms of the living card game model, the biggest examples of that at the moment are Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, and Android Netrunner. Now, I confess I have not played the Game of Thrones or the Lord of the Rings LCGs, but I have played and well, I have played, I do play Android Netrunner. It is a game that I'm very big into at the moment. I just bought a second core set from that Eastley demo day that I mentioned. And it's a great game where you've got corporations versus the runners and there are factions for each particular side, all of which play very differently. The game is asymmetrical in its theme in that the, when you play the runner, you are playing a completely different game from the corporation. And it's all about the runner hacking the corporation's servers, bypassing all their 
ICE and protective uh, countermeasures in order to steal their agendas, whereas the corporation's is, job is to block out the runner by defending its servers and obviously proceeding with its agendas that the other guy is trying to steal. It's a great game, very thematic. The artwork is gorgeous, but there is a bit of a learning curve to the game and the terminology takes some getting used to because instead of things like a deck and discard pile, you have research and development and archives or the heap or the grip, you know, or the stack. You know, there's some weird terms for some of the cards and it does take a bit of getting used to. But other than that, it's a quality game and I really like it. Now, how does LCG work? Well, LCG differs in that, yes, you have expansion packs and core sets, like the base star sets, but when you buy a pack, the cards are the same no matter what. If you buy the core set, you will get the same cards in every core set. If you buy an expansion data pack, as the Netrunner one is called, you will get three copies of 20 different cards, always. And it's the same 20 cards. There is no variation. There is no rare, common, and super rare. You know what you are getting before you buy the box. And chances are, unless you are making multiple decks, you will never need to buy that same pack twice. Now, obviously, this differs quite a bit from the CCG, and you might think it's cheaper. Well, that depends. I have probably spent a good £150 on my Netrunner collection so far, which has got me every expansion pack, as well as two copies of the core set. I think it's roughly around £150, maybe slightly more, but certainly nowhere near 200 And I've got copies, multiple copies of certain cards. I've got more than enough cards to see me for a long time in Netrunner. But, all right, yes, I will probably buy all the expansion packs because you know me. Completionist syndrome. I like to have everything. But by no means do you have to. The core set is very good in this game. You can get a lot of variation out of the box. And it's, you know, you... It depends how much you want to get into the game, but you certainly don't have to go out and buy every single pack every made. And if you do your research and find out what cards are in each data pack, you can actually decide for yourself whether you need that particular expansion or not. Whereas with a CCG, you are chances are you are going to be buying every expansion pack that comes out, and then you don't even know what cards you're going to get. I mean, yes, you can research what cards are in the expansion, but you can't be certain you'll get them, particularly if they're really super rare cards. This means that every card in Netrunner has pretty much the same value, and the same goes for other LCGs. No card is rarer than the other, so the value is no different. Maybe it might be slightly peaked just because of popularity, but to be honest, if you go online, you can find a lot of people selling CCG cards on eBay, like singles. You don't find very many people doing it with LCGs, certainly not Netrunner, and this is quite interesting. But LCG versus CCG. Which do I prefer? Personally, straight off the bat, I'm going to say the LCG model because CCGs have sucked up enough of my money in the past and it's quite frustrating where somebody could buy a booster box, get exactly what they want and get some really cool stuff to sell off and then you buy a box and it's completely, you know, it's worthless in comparison. The whole uncertainty of not knowing what cards you're going to get is also quite frustrating and in some CCGs, there's usually a habit where somebody's like really good deck is composed of extremely expensive cards and that's always a pain that doesn't sit well with me that i mean magic has this big problem that you know the more expensive the deck the better the deck generally is that is pretty much how it works with magic and a lot of other ccgs it's just the case that some of the rares are super powerful and you need them 
But the problem is, because you need them and they're super rare, they cost a bomb and it just sucks up your money like crazy. It's a huge money sink. Now, you might think, well, hang on a minute, Luke. You just said you spent £150 on your Netrunner games. Well, yeah, but that £150 is A, more than enough that you need in order to play the game, and B, it's also every single card and multiple copies of it and that's including a second core set which you do not need unless you are like me making multiple decks if you just want to make one deck for each side or if you just want to make maybe i suppose having a second core set is very handy but if you're not fussed about competitive gaming or anything you know like going in tournaments and that then you don't need to have a second core set so you could play this game you could buy the core set for 25 pound and get so much play out of that base box. You might buy a few data packs on top. So let's go, let's be prudent and say £75. You buy a core set and a couple of data, a few data packs maybe. Uh, maybe one of the bigger expansion lots, you know, depending on what side you're playing. So let's say 75 to £100, the maximum you could be spending on this game. And yes, there is the issue that with certain expansions, some cards, they don't get redundant, but they might get replaced. But they never really become totally useless, and especially in Netrunner's case, a lot of the core cards feature in most of the tournament decks that you see out there. So it's not like you have to find a super rare card in a late expansion in order to do well. The base set cards do the job for you. Now, I know that Netrunner is the one that I keep mentioning all the time, but it's the LCG I have experience with. But I've had experience with both models. CCG more than the LCG. But I still think the LCG works better as a concept. I like the fact that you know what you're getting, which means you can keep the cost down and you can make your own decisions about whether you want to put money into it or not. CCGs, that, that element of randomness is what is now putting me off them. I only play one CCG, and granted I do slip back into the problem where, oh, there's a new expansion, I'll get some boxes, but I am now trying to tone down the level at which I do that. I'm trying to basically get about three or four decks in that CCG together and leave it at that. Unless something comes out that is so good I need to have it, I'm going to just try and stick to what I've got because CCGs can just suck up so much money and I don't think it's worth it. An LCG though, it can last you a long time and it just nowhere near sucks up the money that you got. I mean, I said I spent £150. £150 will probably get you three booster boxes for a CCG and you might not even get enough to make your deck when you've done that. You know, you might, you could make a deck, but could you make the deck that you've researched or decided, right, I need copies of that card and that in three booster boxes? Wishful thinking. That's all I can say to that. So, in my opinion, I think the LCG does work better. The CCG is not dead. I mean, there's loads of collectible card games out there and Magic is still going strong. You know, Richard Garfield, uh, I believe he was the creator of Magic, you know, he could build an island out of Magic the Gathering cards and live on it. That's how many cards there are and how much money he has made off that game. So, fair play. CCGs are still here, but the LCG is the one that I think is the future. Now, on that note, Fantasy Flight Games, if you... Well, obviously, you're not listening to this podcast, but I'm going to say this anyway... You've started bringing out Draft Wars, or whatever it's called, you know, the drafting version of Netrunner. Stop. Stop it now. That is something you get in Magic and CCGs. LCGs are not meant to be randomized drafting. You know, you are trying to mix the CCG model with the LCG model, and I don't want you to do that. Stick to how the LCG model was working, and the game will thrive. It's already thriving. Stop trying to mix the genres 
Okay, rant over. But that's essentially my thoughts on that. I think LCGs are better than CCGs, but leave me your comments and contact me on Board Game Geek and Twitter and that. Let me know your thoughts. Do you prefer CCG? Do you prefer LCG? It's your decision, and in the end, as long as you enjoy the game, that's the main thing, no matter how much money you put into it. So, that's my opinion on the subject. Let's get on with the top 10. Okay, we're on to my top 10 overrated games. Now, I'm going to try to be a little bit quicker with these top 10s because they are taking quite a while and it does take me a long time to edit one of these podcasts. So I'm going to try not to dwell too much on a particular game and get through the chart. Not super quick, but just to give an overview of each game, not go into stupid amount of detail as to each particular segment because it just drags the podcast on a bit too long. And obviously, like I say, it takes a long time to edit these things. So I feel it just needs a little bit of shortening. So we'll see how that goes. This might go completely completely wrong you know i may end up just rambling on as i seem to be doing right now actually yes i'm rambling on so without further ado let's actually crack on this is the top 10 overrated games just one quick little disclaimer though this is not my top 10 worst games this is top 10 games that i think they're not as good as everybody belts out that they are and this is going to be based not only on whether i like the game or not but also on its placing and Board Game Geek. Most of the games in this top 10 list feature in the top 100. There are a few that aren't, but they're still at least in the top 300, I believe. You know, they're still pretty highly regarded games. So just bear that disclaimer in mind. It may still be a good game, but it just might not deserve its position. But I'll explain more as I go through each game. So without further ado, let's make a start. Number 10. Number 10 is a train game that is popular with a lot of Euro gamers that are into train games in general. Now, personally, train games are not a favourite with me. I'm not a huge fan as to how they work, but some train games I can tolerate. I mean, I love Ticket to Ride, but to call that a train game is stretching the definition a bit. It's a very light gateway game. But this one is Chicago Express. Whenever those who like train games like train games, they really like to belt on about Chicago Express. Now, I wasn't expecting to like it when I went into it, but I gave it a try just to see what all the fuss is about. But I don't get what the fuss is about. It's just a very generic board where four of you are in not symmetrical places, so the game's not entirely balanced to begin with, and the idea is is that you are laying out tracks across this very generic map that seems to go through one giant forested area and then just hit nothing but level planes for ages, connecting up to cities on the other side. If you connect up to certain cities, you will get more points. And during a game, your tracks are worth a certain amount of money, depending on share dealings and things like that. And you can also up your value of your tracks by developing particular segments. However, I found that the actions where you had a choice of auctioning off shares and building tracks and that, the one where you had to develop your track, nobody took. Not one person took it. It was regarded by everyone in that game that it just was so underpowered. Even the guy who owned the game said that it's very rarely taken. So you've only got three different actions you can do, and one of them is being made redundant. So that's a great start to your game, yes. But the game is so boring. You just literally put out a new track on segments, pay a certain amount of money, auction shares, 
and that's it. It's just basically 18xx light. And 18xx is not exactly a fun genre anyway. I mean, if you've ever played an 18xx game, be prepared for your brain to just melt in how over the top it is in terms of share dealings and that. I do accountancy as a day job. I don't want it as the focus point of my board games. Now, it's ranked in the sort of early 200s, so it's not, you know, the most hyped game all. And it's only at number 10, but it's just really not that fun of a game in my opinion, so I don't see why it gets the buzz. So, number 10, Chicago Express. Number 9. I am going to get some flack for this, I know it. Everybody is raving about this game, and I got to play it recently at a Portsmouth on board session. And much as I can see that the game is good for some people, it's ranked really high on Board Game Geek. We're talking in the 20s, I think, and I just don't get why. This is Robinson Crusoe, Adventure on the Cursed Island, I believe it's the full title. Now, I like co-op games, and I was buzzed to play this because everybody was raving on about it. I thought, ooh, survival on an island in the middle of nowhere and different scenarios and very complicated playing playing that. I thought, yeah, this is going to be pretty good. Let's see how it goes. So I got stuck into a four-player game on the introductory scenario of building a wood fire in order to signal an oncoming ship. Woo. Not exactly the most exciting of scenarios, is it? You must build a bunch you must build a fire to signal a ship. What that's the entire game is somehow just building a wood fire. And it's I mean it's all an alright game. You've got cards that have different effects, and if you choose to ignore the card, then you can ignore them, but if you choose to get the positive effect, it might bounce back later as a negative one. And that's quite a cool mechanic. But there are certain aspects of the game that I just don't get. You know, the inventions is what really bugs me. Because the inventions, you can you have two markers that represent like how long you're going to take on something. And if you place one, two markers on something, it means that it takes an entire day to do and you effectively do it flawlessly, no problem. If you put one marker on it, it means you're taking half a day to do it, but something could go wrong. You could injure yourself or you could fail at the invention and you might draw an event card, that kind of thing. Now, I'm okay with the event card side of it. But some of these inventions, we're not talking complex inventions here. We're talking like a fire. We're talking a a knife, a spear. Now, I know you're on a deserted island and resources are low. So some of them I can imagine would take a little while. But a day? And, I mean, I was the cook. I had to build a fireplace and first I needed to invent fire. You are telling me that it takes a day, a solid day, to invent fire. Now, I'm no Ray Mears, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm no survival expert, but I'm pretty sure if I know how to construct fire, I could do it in less than a day, and I could do it without injuring myself. I mean, what are you supposed to build a fire? How can you injure yourself? You've got to stretch your imagination a bit far to say that, it's a, oh, I was walking to collect some wood, I collected some wood, and then I tripped over, fell down a cliff, landed on a spike, and was eaten by a bear. You know, what... How can you? How far must you stretch your imagination to make this one day to make something justified? It just really that detracted from the theme a lot to me. But even that sort of slightly petty thing aside, I just didn't think the game was all that in a bag of chips. It was it was okay. Maybe some of the other scenarios are better, and I should try them because there are ones that you have to like 
escape off a volcano island and one where you're surrounded by cannibals and those sound like really cool scenarios you know something a bit more tense but woo i'm building a giant fire which for some reason takes many weeks to do compared to a fire that takes a day which doesn't make sense it's uh and it just i don't know it just did not seem that exciting for me i mean it's okay i don't think it's a bad game by any means that's why it's only number nine on my list but in the ranked in the 20s I've got games like Flashpoint, Sentinels in the Multiverse, Marvel Legendary, Forbidden Desert, anything else? That Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror. I would play... Oh, Ghost Stories. Yeah, can't forget Ghost Stories. I would play any of those co-op games before I played Robinson Crusoe. And they're not anywhere near as highly ranked. So I just don't get why Robinson Crusoe is getting a cut above the rest in that respect. So, number nine, Robinson Crusoe. Number eight. Number eight is a rather silly game. The first half of the game is a frantic rush to basically grab whatever tiles you can from a collection in the middle and construct your spaceship. And I mean really timed. I mean it's just there's an egg timer. Quickly grab it. See if the things will connect. See if you can do it legally. And it's just utter chaos. You then spend the second half of the game sitting there while event cards come up and you just watch your ship get obliterated. Usually depending on dice luck as well. Again, dice luck, this is a problem in games. This one is Galaxy Trucker and I was pumped to play this as well. I thought this sounds like such a hilarious game, I've got to go with it. But the first half of the game is where it sucks for me. The second half of the game where you draw event tiles and just watch to see if your ship blows up is quite funny. Unless you're on the receiving end of it. You know, if your ship is doomed to die, then it's pretty sucky to sit there and just watch it happen. But the first half of the game, that timed aspect of just grabbing tiles is frustrating because you could just be so unlucky in what you grab, it just doesn't connect well on your ship. You know how you want to construct your ship, but you can't. And who has to construct their ship in such a short amount of time like that anyway? I mean, come on. But somebody else who just happened to have the better tiles next to them or just got luckier with the draw, you know, they can construct a really good ship. Your ship might be rubbish. And if your ship turns out to be rubbish, you know you're not going to win. So you are basically just riding the waves until the end of the game, really. Now, I know it's meant to be quite light and you shouldn't take it too seriously in that respect. But the game's not short by any means. This game can take a while. And if you're just going along for the ride, knowing you've no chance of winning because your ship just isn't good enough, it's just not that fun, to be honest. You know, it... I haven't seen many people with this game, but those who like it really love it, and I just don't think it's all that really. So I can't really say much on this game. It's just too chaotic. It's just too messy, and, you know, it takes a while. It just isn't for me, really. That's Galaxy Tropica, my number eight. Number seven. Number seven, I had to swap with another place on my list mainly because this one isn't necessarily buzzed about as much as um the other choice but when it comes to zombie games this one still gets quite a lot of buzz now i bet some of you are thinking i'm going to say zombicide i'm not i have played zombicide and yes it's a relatively simplistic game almost akin to left for dead but the miniatures look great it's fun and it's just a bit of a fun zombie romp at least you are dealing with a proper horde What I'm about to say, though, is Last Night on Earth. Last Night on Earth has probably about 10 zombies that appear on the board at any particular point. 
And it's a typical zombie game. You are survivors. You've got a particular scenario, whether it's filling up a car with gas or defending a building, that kind of thing. Zombies will come. You've got to go around, search, get stuff, survive. You know, it's very generic. It's the same type of zombie game, just like all the rest. But why does this one, I think, get the overrated position? Well, there are some rules in the game that thematically just don't make sense. There's one particular scenario we played, which was filling the car up with gas and getting out of there. That makes sense. There was another scenario we played where we had to defend a manor house from the zombies getting in. Why? Because you had to run out of the manor house to go to nearby buildings to get the various items that you needed to defend yourself with. And the zombies just had to aim for this manor house. Well, if the zombies are trying to get into this manor house, why are you staying in it? Why not leave the zombies to go into the manor house and just run? Get out of there. Why would you stick around? Why would you leave the house that you're protecting to go find stuff only to come back to the house then? It really is weird. Um, the terrain tiles are kind of strange as well because the outer ring is one size and the center tile is kind of like this zoomed in giant space one. So the spatial awareness in this game is kind of weird as well. But... Some areas of thematicness, I mean, again, this is all swingy with dice luck again. Why is it with dice luck? But there are certain rules that are just stupid, really stupid. I mean, for example, I was a zombie player, and I had two zombies on the survivor. And it's like, fair enough, we should probably kill him. His friend with a shotgun comes by, shoots into that space, and according to the rules, it stipulated that he was able to shoot both zombies without touching his friend. Have you ever fired a shotgun? Do you know how they work? Do you have any conception of how, in a tightly enclosed space, anybody in the midst of a struggle is going to survive being pelted with a shotgun? It should have at least had a chance of hitting the survivor, but no, somehow it just magically goes around the guy and kills two zombies. On top of that, I believe there was a line of sight rule where somebody was able to shoot past a zombie to kill two zombies behind him or something like that. Or was it, um, no, no, it might have been a survivor in front. Maybe he shot past a survivor directly behind and hit a zombie. So hang on, all these survivors are marksmen from the film The Matrix, are they? You know, they're able to matrix dodge shotgun pellets and basically shoot past people's eardrums in order to hit zombies behind them. With no chance of hitting a survivor. What was the... <laughs> that makes no sense. And then, because of bad dice rolls, their plan, when we were clearly overrunning this manor house, was to basically go up to the zombies, which have this weird rule of if a survivor is near them, the zombies just abandon whatever they're doing and go towards the survivor. Now, I suppose that does make a bit of sense. But they basically went in and tanked seven to eight zombies a person. Well, maybe not quite seven to eight, but certainly a lot. You know, one person had about seven or eight on them. The others were tanking about two to three, maybe, max. And just lured them away. And because of sucky die rolls, they were able to do this for three turns straight. We should have won that game eight turns before it finished. But the stupid tactic of tanking zombies somehow worked. These are just random people in the middle of a survival apocalypse. And yet somehow they can tank a horde of zombies. Although I say a horde, it's just basically eight figures. It's hardly a horde. But... I'd love to know how it's possible for one person to survive against eight zombies clawing at them relentlessly. You know, I, I, I'm ranting too much here. I should get on to the next point. But yeah, there's there's just too many stupid rules in this game. I don't like how you have two zombie players playing the zombies. It should always be just one. 
and the dice luck just swings this game far too much. It's not for me. I didn't mind it the first time, but then I played it several times more and realized, yeah, what is the deal with this game? It's just no good. I'd rather play Zombie Side. So that's it for me. That's number seven, Last Night on Earth. Number six. Number six, I don't hear many people owning or have played, mainly because the game is just so ridiculously long. And no, I don't mean Twilight Imperium 3. Twilight Imperium 3 is a good game. Yes, it's really long, but it's justified for that length. Here's a game though that isn't justified for its length, and that's Mage Knight. This is really high up. I think this is in the top 10 games or something like that, Mage Knight. And effectively, it's a fantasy game. You have your starting character. You go off into the lands, explore tombs and things like that, and have to conquer castles. I forget. It was quite a while ago. I can't remember the exact plot. But it takes so long. There's so much complication in the rules. And you have to read the rules about five times before you can understand them. There's a weird little sort of deck building element to the spells which just isn't necessary why not just have a spell book why not just have a cards in your hand i just don't get why they had to put that mechanic in it but it's just so overly complicated and i never felt like i was this was my guy and i was leveling up or anything like that i just felt i was generic attacker number one just got a couple of random items and then had to go basically do math calculations in order to decide whether I slayed an enemy or not. It never felt like, oh, I slayed the dragon. No, it was just basically, right, I got an attack of seven. That's got a thing of seven, but there's those modifiers. I need to account for that. It's, what? It's not meant to be number crunching. I'm supposed to be there with a sword going, ha-ha, you know, I shall defeat the enemy, you know, but it's just too much complication and too much length. We could not finish the game. Three of us, I think three players, we could not finish the game in one four-hour session of the night that we had. The analysis paralysis in this game goes to rocket levels, and the complication of the rules means that you're constantly having to check things, and it just didn't feel like a great exploration fantasy fest. It really didn't. So I just don't get why this one is that high. Very few, I don't know, one person at the moment who owns this game. Everybody else has been put off this game for similar reasons. It's just too long and too complicated. So, why is it this popular? Fair enough, it probably isn't all bad, but it just seriously needs some streamlining. It seriously needs its length cut down a bit, and it just needs to get out of the top ten. There are better games than this out there. So, I think for that reason, it had to go reasonably high on the list. Number six, Mage Knight. Number five. Number five is was regarded as Twilight Imperium Free Light by Eurogamers. No, it's not. This number five is Eclipse. If you are playing Eclipse, you are not playing a space opera epic game. You are playing an economic balance your checkbook game in space. Well, in space with a space theme tacked onto it. You have generic humans, which are all the same, so there's no variety in the races, unless I believe you get the expansion or the uh, additional bits which have certain alien races. And the tech tree system makes no sense. It's completely random when things come out, and depending on the turn order, it could decide whether you get a particular tech or not. So it's got nothing to do with your strategic decision-making. It's just, oh, you wanted to have those on your ships? Well, tough. I go first, and it just came out when I was going my turn. So there you go. It's mine. You can't plan for it. It just happens. 
It's also pretty bland for the game. I mean, it's just greys everywhere. It's just grey, 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 grey as a colour scheme. I mean, yeah, the hexes that you explore are okay, but you're just sticking cubes out. You know, there's no like funky pieces. It's just cubes, and your board is just a motley collection of a million cubes all over the shop. So it doesn't feel like a space epic game. It's just pushing cubes with a space theme on top. And it takes, again, a long time. I was introduced to this with a six players and a Rise of the Ancients expansion. This took longer than my first experience with Twilight Imperium 3, which was a six-hour game. I kid you not. Eclipse with a lot of players can take a ton of time. Now, I will give this another try. I will see whether I enjoy it if I play it with less players. I think my mate Graham has this game and he wants to get it to the table. So with less players maybe and without that expansion, you know, just keep it nice and simple. Maybe change the race I was, you know, because I, I think the plant lot were a bit boring. You know, their ships were pretty rubbish and basically it was all just about exploring, nothing else. So we'll see maybe whether that drops my opinion of, I'm sorry, drops, um, raises my opinion of this game. But it's certainly, it's also pretty highly ranked and people just bang on about it being this really great space epic game. It's not a space epic game. It's an economic game in space. Twilight Imperium 3 is a space epic game. Exodus Proxima Centauri is a relatively space epic game. Empires of the Void is not quite epic, but it still feels like more of a space game than Eclipse does. So it just shouldn't be this high. So Eclipse is getting my number five spot. Number four. Now, I may get some flack for this one as well. Well, actually, to be honest, I'm going to get flack for everything from this point onwards, I think. Maybe not my number three, but certainly from four, two, and one, I'm going to get some flack. Now, this is ranked number one on Board Game Geek. This is the number one game that should be played, according to the Board Game Geek rankings. Now, I have played this game. I was interested to play the game. However, there was no way this game should be number one, and this is Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle is a two-player back-and-forth game where you are effectively trying to get influence in all different territories in the world. It's set in the Cold War, and you play cards each turn to move influence from one place to another, and basically you're constantly back-and-forth at your opponent. It's a very tight game, very close, and in that respect, it's good. But number one... I mean, I played that game, and I know nothing about history. I'm not a fan of history. I don't know anything about the Cold War, apart from what I've seen in the James Bond movie, and I don't even think that counts. So there's very little I know about the Cold War, but this theme is just nothing but the Cold War. And yes, it does a good job of portraying that theme, but if you don't know the theme or don't like the theme, this game is going to bore you to high heaven. I mean, all right, it didn't bore me to high heaven, but I'm playing a card that says, I don't know, Mascal Abraham or whatever, I don't know, some random guy. And there's a picture of him, there's all black and white images from history, which is pretty cool. And But I play it and it does an effect, and I have no idea why. I don't know who he is. I play another event, you know, where a treaty was arranged in a particular year, and it does this effect. Why? I have no idea what this is from history. You know, I'm just playing a card and I'm watching the influence go back and forth. Now, okay, the game is quite tight and close and for its time, because this is quite an old game, I think. Um, well, maybe not that old, to have to see. But it's an okay game. I don't think it's bad. But considering the theme is so niche and if you have no interest in the Cold War, you are not going to get the same enjoyment out of this game as someone who, for example, does, why is it number one? Makes no sense. 
there are plenty of games I'd rather play than this one. It should not be number one. Now, I mean, I I would rather play this game than something like uh, Galaxy Trucker or Last Night on Earth or Mage Knight, you know, stuff that was on this list. But it's high up on this list at number four because it's ranked number one on Board Game Geek, and it just shouldn't be. Not number one. There are better games than this out there. If you like the Cold War, then you will like this game fair enough. But the ne- the theme is just so niche. You cannot thoroughly like this game if you don't like the Cold War theme or just haven't got an interest in it because the cards just don't make sense. And it's not exactly the greatest like component quality game either. I mean, the images are just black and white ones straight out of an history encyclopedia. The board is pretty bland. It's just basic colors and a few random like loads of squares all over the shop it's not that great a game not to be number one i don't know make your own opinion if you ever get to buy it but personally i will play it but i'm just not going to get into it as much as some people are raving about it so number four twilight struggle number three Now, I like the TV series that this game is based on. I love the series. I mean, granted, I wince a bit at some of the gross bits. You know, I used to be alright with gore. Now I'm a little bit, not screamish, but I don't know. Gore is just, horror films just don't sing with me anymore. But I digress. This is Game of Thrones, the second edition board game. Now, I love the series. I think Game of Thrones is a fantastic series. It's one of the only series I watch relentlessly. Now... The problem with the board game is that, yes, it captures the theme of the particular uh, factions that are in it. But there's a problem with this game. It is two big flaws. One, it is dependent on the group in so many ways. If you don't have a group that is willing to do negotiations or actually try to make alliances and that, this game just falls apart and becomes solitaire. And I know that's more fault of the players maybe than the game, but if the game lends itself to that, if it's so dependent on the players, then it's going to not be worth that higher ranking. And this is like number 30, I think, in the rankings. It's pretty high. And the biggest other flaw is that it's just so unbalanced. It really is. I believe from games that I have seen played and reports I have seen, the Baratheons have the biggest advantage in this game. They have the best starting area. They're relatively secure because they're mostly starting on an island as opposed to in the middle of the main areas. And they've only got two, maybe three people max that are likely to cause them any threat in the starting game. Whereas you've got other races who have a similar amount but don't have as good starting locations. Uh, the Baratheon characters are pretty good compared to the other ones. And Lannister, I mean, granted, people should be kicking Lannisters, but they are the evil guys, effectively. But they're in the middle of the board. They are surrounded by everyone, and their starting territories are rubbish in comparison to people like the Baratheons and that. So suddenly, if you are playing the Lannisters, you have a massive disadvantage at the start of the game because everybody can just pile on you. Now, they say, yeah, you should make alliances and that, but if the group doesn't let you, then you're screwed. And even if the group does let you, you're still surrounded by everyone. You're going to get killed from all sides, and there's nothing you can do about it. It uh, I don't. It was frustrating when I played it. I just, I, It was okay, but I was expecting a lot from this game. I wanted a true Game of Thrones game, and those two big flaws, the unbalancing and the fact that it's so group-dependent just really disappointed me it should not be this high on board game geek i 
I'm unlikely to want to play this again because I just think it is too unbalanced. It also takes a long time as well. I mean, it's you know when you've got max pairs, it does take a while because you've got analysis paralysis again. There's lots of things to consider. And I, believe, I can't remember if there was die rolls in it. I don't think there were. I can't remember, but I won't use that as a excuse. It's just... Those two big flaws are what kill it for me, and I just don't think it deserves as high a place as it should. It was a letdown for me. I much prefer the TV series. So, TV series, great. Board game. Number two. Right, here comes the first of the big flack that I'm going to get. This is number eight on Board Game Geek. Everybody who knows me at local clubs knows that I have a pathological hatred for this game. However, it is not as big a pathological hatred as my number one, which I'll get onto later. But this is number eight on Board Game Geek. It is a staple game in many Eurogamers collections. Now, I like Eurogames. I like a lot of Eurogames. This particular Eurogame, though, is bland, boring, too long, too overly subjective to analysis paralysis, and it's called Power Grid. This gets a lot of buzz from people who like Paragrid, but I just cannot see why. I have been forced to play this game several times, mostly at gunpoint really, because the guy who introduced it to me was one of these Eurogamers who didn't like worker placement. Worker placement is a fantastic mechanism and it makes some of the best Euro games. And it's also one of the staples of most Euro games. To not like worker placement alienates half the genre. But, oh well, I digress on that front. But he was also the one who introduced me to Chicago Express, so you can tell what I think about his game collection. Um, But Power Grid, oh, where do I begin? The only good thing I can say about this game is that the resource market is thematic and works. You, depending on the location, certain resources cost more than others, and if it gets bought up, then obviously it gets rarer and therefore more expensive. That works well. That's why this gets my number two spot rather than my number one spot because it does have a redeeming quality to it. But that's where the redeeming qualities end. This is rank number eight. Eight. And it's such a mind bender. Every single action you have to recalculate in your head how much money you've got, how much money you're going to need for auctions that come up for power plants, how much money you're going to need for resources, because everything that happens can potentially change your strategy. Now, that can be regarded as more tactics, but the amount of analysis paralysis that you get from people having to mentally calculate this stuff is just insane. The board itself is colourful, but still relatively bland. I mean, you've got different map country maps, but they're all the same. It's just basically a slightly different layout with different connections all over the place. It's not exactly, you know, no extra rules to, to a great extent, certainly nothing groundbreaking. And if you've got less players, you don't even use the whole map. When I got introduced to it, I thought, oh, Italy, can we have Italy? Because I like the country, and I reckon that'll be a cool little map in that. There were three of us playing, so we used three chunks of the top part of Italy. Well, what was the point in choosing Italy, then? I might as well have just chosen Germany. Germany's just one big lump. You know, it's not like a, it's not got funky shapes or anything like that. It's, you know, it's just one fairly round uh, country in the middle of Europe. But that was all we were playing in Italy, just one lump at the top of Italy. So... What was the point? It just makes it feel weird when you're doing that. I'd rather that you added on bits when you had more players. Not that the thing was so bare bones when you have less players and then it becomes full when you have all of them. You know, that just doesn't work for me. 
the catch-up mechanic. I was on the Dice Tower Showdown uh, defending this, and there's a mechanic where, you know, depending on what type of power plants you've got and uh, what your rating of your sort of like um, connections are and that, determines your turn order. But people deliberately screw themselves over just to be first in line on the next turn. And that just, what, does, what sense does that make? Does a does a real corporation that's into energy uh, energy production deliberately hold itself back just so that the future is slightly better? No, it doesn't make any sense. And it's just a weird, it's just there as an artificial catch-up mechanic just to try and stop runaway leaders. However, to be honest, it doesn't work all that well because a runaway leader can still get away with things. And a lot of the game is done in the last turn as well. You could have done well for most of the game, but if you mess up one thing on your last turn, then you've lost. Somebody will beat you just because you messed up the last turn. And when you've played the game for three odd hours waiting for this bit to happen, and then it all just goes wrong, oh, that is frustrating. But even with those aside, the game is just bland. You basically just auction off plants, which auctioning is a boring mechanic anyway. I never like auctions in games. And then you just buy a few resources, pay money, here's a connection, and then collect some money, rinse, repeat. That's all it is. The interaction in this game is purely down to the auction, which, to be honest, is not exactly the most fun interaction in the world. It's just 8, 9, 12, 16, 18. Well, you can have it. You know, boring. It's just <laughs> And the only other interaction in the game is just, oh, you bought those things up. I was going to do that which is not exactly terribly interactive. You get that in most games. So rank number eight, a staple Euro game? No. Power Grid, I hate this game. I will never play it again. I do not want to... I, I cringe when I see this game being played. I cringe when I see someone talk good about this game. It's just... Ah, oh, it's giving me a headache just talking about it. Rank eight, I don't like this game. I really don't. Power Grid, stupidly overrated, but not my number one overrated game. What game could possibly make me cringe more than Power Grid? If anybody knows me, they know what's coming. Oh yes, it's coming. And finally, number one. This game won an award in the year it came out. I don't get how it won an award. The people who voted that this game should get an award must have been asleep or maybe they were being brainwashed by the Super Skynet computer or something. I don't know. This is what started my hatred for Queen Games as a publisher. Now to be fair, Queen Games have been pulling it out of the bag recently with games like Amerigo and a couple of other ones and Alhambra by Queen Games I believe is still a very good game. But this game made me go, I'm a little bit suspicious because if Queen Games want to put out a game like this, I've got to be wary of their next lot. This game has you assembling a map which is just full of different colour hexagons. And we're not talking great artwork, we are talking clip art effectively, or pretty much a child with a felt tip pen could do better than this. You then put little, tiny little monopoly houses all over this map in a way to collect points. All your houses are generic. The scoring system is determined by random cards each game, which make no thematic sense. Some will get you to build houses in a completely straight line across multiple terrains, because for some reason that gets you points. This is regarded as an award-winning game. 
It is not. It is an abstract game, and it is a rubbish abstract game in itself just like that. Your round is determined by a single card that you draw from the deck that dictates where you're allowed to put a house. You have no options. You have no way to mitigate this card. You draw the card. If it's the one that helps you, great. If it's one that doesn't, you're screwed. You are then forced to play your houses in particular ways, and chances are you only have one viable option when you draw that card, if you're lucky you've got two, but chances are you are forced to do one thing with that house in order to get the optimal points, and most of the time you won't even have an optimal house because it's not the terrain you wanted. This game is called Kingdom Builder, and I would personally go on a crusade to see that every copy of this game is burnt. I, I think burning the box and its contents is more enjoyable than actually playing this game. You know, this isn't just overrated. You know, I it's on my overrated chart, but I guarantee this would be on my top 10 worst games. I, I hate this game more than Paragrid. Paragrid had a redeeming quality in that its resource market made sense and was implemented well. I had a positive thing to say about Paragrid. I have nothing positive to say about Kingdom Builder. It is boring. It is bland. It is a sh- stupidly designed you know with this whole draw one card and it dictates everything you do the scoring system makes no sense in why you would have to build your houses in weird concentric circles or straight lines and the terrain types don't make sense either i mean would you really build your houses in a chasm i mean (laughs) and what is the pink meant to be there's you've got yellow for desert you've got green for plains you've got dark green for forest yeah that makes sense you've then got this one pink which is like flowers What's pink? What flowers? I mean, what flower terrain? Do you suddenly go from desert to pixie fairyland or something? You know, you know. Is it? I'm building my hotel complex in Wonderland and seeing how that works. The maps make no sense because you'll have three spaces right next to each other that are desert, and then all of a sudden it goes to vibrant forest, and then all of a sudden to a chasm, and then back to desert or something. And and yes, okay. There's variation in how the map looks, but it's so bland and i'm not even going to call it variation it doesn't matter how varied how different the map parts of the board are set out because you're drawing one card and that one card dictates where you go it doesn't matter that the map is varied because i'm still stuck to this one card and this one of the ward as well I can't understand. I, I forget the year it came out, but there were so many good games in that year. I know there were. There must have been something better than this pile of trash that should have deserved an award a lot better than this game. In the subsequent year, Hanabi won a similar award. Now, Hanabi is not the best game I've ever played, but it's ingenious. It's innovative. It's great for all gamers and non-gamers alike. It's small, it's cheap, it ticks a lot of boxes. This Kingdom Builder doesn't tick any box. It's just rubbish, boring and bland, and I would happily burn a copy if it ever got shown to me again. I just... Ugh, God. Grumpy old gamer, as I said. I really just don't like this Kingdom Builder game. It's horrible. I was not only disappointed, I was almost outraged at how rubbish this game was and how I could do nothing to do well in this game on any time I have played it just because the card drawn doesn't let me. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. Kingdom Builder, my number one most overrated game ever.
Do not play this game. Do not buy this game. Do not even look at this game. Looking at this game will cause you or face to melt in a similar manner to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I swear that was happening to me when I opened the box to that game for the first time. Ah. And I'm not alone in my thinking here. Some other people think this is boring. And the Dice Tower, the uh, Sam Healy, the Top 10 crew, all three of them hate Kingdom Builder. I believe Z Garcia had it at number one on disappointing list. Tom Vassell had it at number 10. And and Sam Healy had it at number 11. I'm not alone in my thinking here. This is a rubbish game. It should never have won an award. What were the voters thinking? Kingdom Builder, number one. I've ranted enough. Get this game away from me, please. And breathe. Yep, that's it for this episode. Sorry for the constant rants. I have been meaning to do that list for quite some time because I just needed to let off some steam with some of these... Well, whether they're bad games or not remains to be seen by some of them, but they're certainly overrated, and in the case of at least my top two, they are just bad. Very bad. But enough of that. My next top ten list should be obviously a lot more positive, because whatever it's going to be, it's not going to be a bad or worst games list or anything like that. So next one will be nice and happy and sparkly and fairy-like, you know, so it'll be a lot nicer to listen to on that respect. But for now, the next thing on the agenda is obviously my cancer research page i've got to get some more donations for that and prepare for tabletop day it's going to be good fun in that respect but the next thing is i mean i said i'm grumpy old gamer it's because next friday the 4th of april is my 30th birthday and i have been dreading turning 30 for a long time now i know a lot of people in their 30s and 40s are going well it's not old i'm miles older than that but I don't know, I like my 20s, I like being young, I go to the gym to try and look young, but it's, I don't know, 30 just really, there are certain things I'd like to have achieved and I haven't, and when 30 comes along, it almost feels like a milestone where you have to reflect back and go, oh, I haven't done that, and I haven't done this, you know, so it's just not, it's not a day I'm overly looking forward to, but it i'll be able to see some friends and have fun so it'll be a good laugh and i've got two celebrations for that because uh, one group i've had to delay until the following week but as another way to celebrate my 30th there will obviously be the tabletop day and mini stab events going on on that same weekend so if i don't like the birthday aspect i can at least look forward to if not 24 hours of gaming a lot of hours of gaming so it's going to be quite a good fun weekend but for now that's it for me. Thank you for listening to episode 15 of the Broken Meeple podcast. Take care and enjoy playing games. I'll see you on episode 16. Goodbye. Hosting for the Broken Meeple podcast is provided by SoundCloud.com. Please visit the blog at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.com. Find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thebrokenmeeple. You can also find me on Twitter frequently at thebrokenmeeple. And also on BoardGameGeek, reviews and videos are posted up on a regular basis under Farmer Giles. That's F-A-R-M-E-R-G-I-L-E-S. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope to talk to you soon about board games. And even better, I hope to play with some of you soon. Take care and enjoy gaming.